This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Help. Good morning. Good morning. Professor Ward Scott here as Coach Hall here for a little bit here in the Manly Command Center in our Piney Woods location here in beautiful north central Florida. Melvin Law Studio, which has, of course, Melvin Law has 50 years of experience and is the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gators. They won't back down. Crime Prevention, CPSS.net, and our mugshots 24-7. You may watch uh, out there posted, as many, many people do. Um, really, it's a kind of an interesting day. Every day, of course, is an interesting day in uh, different ways, shapes, and forms, and this is no exception, I suppose. Um, the interesting thing about uh, the world of sports right now probably is everybody is heating up, waiting to see what happens with the U.S. Open because we've still got the number one guy. Well, he's not in rank number one because he's been blocked from some tournaments, but no, no question but what the best uh, player in the world, uh, uh, Djokovic, is banned because he never got vaccinated. So there you are. That's the way it works in the modern world. And uh, we may not have him there. Right now, the, most, uh, the hottest item on the Pro Tour is the enigmatic uh, Nick Kyrgios, which is one of the most talented athletes you'll ever see in any sport. He is, um, reminds me in the wizardry of a player we had around here once upon a time named Jason Williams, also Pete Maravich, those type of guys who are ball handlers in the basketball world. And indeed, Nick Kyrgios is admirer. Michael Jordan wears a Michael Jordan hat and loves to play basketball. He's been a free spirit up till now, uh, kind of on and off and interested and disinterested. And he's so talented that he probably has to kind of let the other guy play a little bit to keep himself interested. Uh, 35 aces the other day in just one match against a player. Uh, so it's uh, um, obviously the talent is there. The mental stability is not there, but he admits it. You know, he says, I just have a lot of trouble with that. He's even, I think, said he has demons. But if you get a chance to see Nick Kyrgios play tennis, boy, you're going to watch a magician. <clears throat> the guy has all the shots, all the power, all the serve, all the drop shots, tremendous speed. And every once in a while, inexplicably, it goes on holidays and lets other guys sort of catch up with him and then puts the um, – Pedal to the metal again, and away he goes. So uh, right now, he just won the Washington, uh, D.C. Open, which is a real athletic event in the terms of heat. You know, uh, D.C. in the summertime is as hot as anywhere, and uh, it was no exception this time. And some athletes really couldn't take it, but uh, Nick cruised through it and won the Washington, D.C., Washington Open. So on he will go towards the U.S. Open. That will be the big stage. We'll see how he does. He certainly has the talent to go all the way. And he certainly is a crowd pleaser. And he's different. He's not your average kind of guy. 
You can harken back to some people like him in the past, Ilya Nastasi, the Romanian, of course, John McEnroe, and even Jim Connor, uh, Jimmy Connors, who were sort of bad boys in tennis. But uh, uh, Kyrgios is right in there with those type of people and is associated with them uh, in the big time and is as good as they are in many ways better. So we'll see how he goes. He doesn't have the career that they have because he hasn't had the consistent consistency. He's from Australia, but he's fantastic. Now here locally, we've got a real hero. I've been saying this all along that this fellow is probably the best coach at the University of Florida and has gone, for the most part, unrecognized and probably uh, um, uncompensated for fairly. But now, according to the releases by the University of Florida uh, press <clears throat> outfits, <clears throat> finally, uh, Mike Holloway has gotten his due. Uh, he's fresh off three national championships this season. He's the Florida track and field and cross-country head coach. For both women and men, this is a phenomenal skill this gentleman has. Uh, it, uh, he's given, given a contract extension at the University of Florida for the next 10 years. Um, this deal places him among the highest paid coaches, according to the UF News release, um, in the sport and pushes his contract through 2032. Uh, he's agreed to a 10-year extension uh, in 2018, but they renewed their commitment because he's a 12-time national champion and a 16-time Southeastern Conference champion coach. And so they really extended this contract on out with this newly signed agreement. He's a quiet, unassuming guy. And uh, he used to be over at Buholtz, coached over there. Then the University of Florida had the good wisdom to put him in charge of the whole track uh, and field sport at the university. Um, he, he is um, sort of self-effacing. He says it's an honor and a blessing to be able to lead the programs there at his alma mater. Um, he's grateful. Uh, his nickname is Mouse, um, and he's pushed both the Gators men and women's track and field programs to unprecedented heights. Um, just to give you some of, the, some of the things that this guy has done, uh, in 2022, the Florida men and women swept the outdoor NCAA championships, becoming just the third school to accomplish that feat. Now, the women also claimed the indoor NCAA championships in 2022, and it was the program's first indoor national title since 1992. And Holloway has earned the National Coach of the Year, on, year Honors 10 times throughout his career. And in 2016, he was inducted into the uh, Track and Field Coaches Hall of Fame. Uh, of the 38 men's NCAA championships uh, contested during Holloway's tenure, the Gators have won 10 and finished in the top five 28 times. I'm not even halfway through this press release on him. You know, you're going to run out of fingers and toes. He's coached men and women student athletes to 84 national championship titles. He is one of the six coaches in Division I history to win at least 10 NCAA track and field team championships. He's one of just four to win at least six since, since 1980, and he's one of four in history to win at least four titles, both indoors and outdoors. You know, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it, I, I, I ran on the track 
when Jimmy Carnes was there and rubbed elbows with some of the greats that were here. And I know what a challenge it is to shave off thousands of a second to get the right kind of coaching, the right kind of tips on how to come out of the blocks or when to turn it on, uh, how to pace yourself, and what strength exercises do and flexibility, et cetera. Um, he's also served as the head coach of the U- U.S. men's track and field Olympic team um, and has all the kinds of victories that he's gotten with it. So he's been uh, leading the Florida track and field program since 2003. Um, I don't know if I can – it goes on and on. You just trust me. Um, you know, this man is, in my humble estimation, and probably many others here at the university, the best coach on this campus we've got or ever had in terms of what he coaches. I just don't recall anybody. Now, there were great swim coaches, um, and that's a, that, that may have a rivalry. I have to check that out. But not for this type of, I don't think, this type of uh, uh, accomplishments that Holloway's had. Certainly not in football. You know, our, our hero in football is Steve, and Steve got a, has got a heck of a, an accomplishment. But Steve coached men's football. This guy coaches men and women, indoor and outdoor. So uh, in, in a sport that is incredibly exacting and demands all sorts of nuances and skill to win and excel at. So keep in mind this name, Mike Holloway. One of the things about track, it's not a fun thing to go watch. Uh, You sit there and there are many events going on at once and you can't take them all in. And some of the more exciting ones are, of course, the the sprints. Um, But there's some exciting things in the pole vault. Uh, It's it's not focused the way the basketball or football or baseball is on just the event at hand. And plus, unless you go to Eugene, Oregon, which is the home of Steve Prefontaine and Nike shoes and all that really don't have a commitment to the stadiums that uh, Oregon has. We don't have that commitment here. Although we've improved a little bit, of course the track is in good shape, uh, but the stands and eh, have come along. But if you really want to watch sometime, pick up on the televised events from uh, Oregon and you'll see what a track stadium looks like. So, and we compete and excel against a, an institution like Oregon, which has a fantastic kind of track and field history to it, as well as a facility. So uh, he's doing it really with, with subpar. You know, we hear all this stuff. You know, I got to tell you right now, all this stuff about we can't recruit football players of excellence unless we have the very best bathrooms and entertainment room and you name it. I mean, they pamper these football athletes and, you know, all over the place. That's not so. Or, or Mike Holloway would not be successful. Mike Holloway has the most successful athletes in the world with subpar, clearly, uh, subpar facilities. What is it about the university stands for track that attract anybody. Nothing. Nothing. So, so you know, I don't buy into this that you've got to have the, the very best, you know, hot, warm showers and, you know, I, you name it. I mean, the football pampering is beyond comparison. 
And yet, this is the most successful group of athletes on the campus, year in, year out, at every level, women and men, in all events. So that's my opinion, and I'm sticking to it, by golly. I think that's a great coach. You know, uh, there's a lot of funny things, too, to report to you today about that I picked up in Coach Hall's locker room and some sad things. You know, um, there is a I, – I don't know what you think about ESPN, but, um, you know, I had a – my grandmother had a saying when she kind of got discussed with us youngins. She would say, uh, go away, molasses, you done lost your taste. And by the way, incidentally, if you're into baseball cards, which I've never been into, I've never quite understood um, the, this whole fascination with baseball cards. Um, but I know people are into it and all that. And certainly there are a lot of people who are intensely into baseball with statistics and all that. But there is a baseball card, uh, according to the uh, uh, post now out in the, uh, on, on the, on the uh, news ticker, a baseball card is considered the rarest in the world and it just sold for millions of dollars. A baseball card, one card. It was a 1909 to 1911 T206 card of Pittsburgh Pirates legend Onus Wagner. It was purchased for $7.25 million at Golden Auctions, according to a Friday report. Seven point. Two five million for a baseball card. This is a record price, and it makes the Wagner card the most expensive card ever to be sold. Seven point two five million. Uh, there are fewer than fifty authenticated T two hundred six Wagner cards, according to the auctioneers. Uh, the previous sale record for a T two hundred six Wagner card was 6.6 million. Now, Wagner won the National League batting title eight times and a World Series title. This is back 1909 to 1911. Uh, in 1936, uh, it was one of the first five baseball players to be elected into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, there you go. If you got one of those cards, you might as well consider yourself to have won the lottery. It is that type of um, bringing that kind of money, if you can believe it. Um, I don't know what you think of ESPN anymore. You know, I kind of they kind of turned me off when they became uh, so political. There's a host out there by the name of Rose, Jalen Jalen Rose, uh, and what he you know he wants. He's posted a. 90-second video of himself, uh, he is, <clears throat> how should I say this, turned off or finds offensive uh, the term Mount Rushmore. Now, I don't know what this has got to do with sports. I thought that's what ESPN was about, was sports. But this guy has uh, taken, I, I guess, upon himself to want to get rid of the name Mount Rushmore which he says should be offensive to all of us. You know, this is the one with all the president's heads on it. And he's going off on how this is a, on a mountain that was on land that was stolen from Indians. 
And um, uh, therefore, uh, uh, this Mount Rushmore in the Black Hills, uh, which was exclusively inhabited by Lakota before colonists came, um, and the land was mined for gold. Well, we ought to do away with Mount Rushmore. I, I'm not going to get into the pros and cons of Mount Rushmore, but I am going to get into the question of whether or not a sports commentator is out of his lane by talking about Mount Rushmore. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know why um, this, is, this should be listened to by anybody. Um, he's also been on everybody's case about Cleveland Indians and Washington Redskins and all these things that you've seen in the news. He, got, he found that offensive. Um, and so there you are. This is all part of what we're going to talk about a little more extensively in this show, the cancel culture, uh, the woke culture, if you will. But uh, there you go. Mount Rushmore works itself into, of all things, a conversation uh, by, a, by, a sports, by a sports analyst. I, I don't get it. And, that's, and, you know, here is, you know, there used to be, I guess there still is, Something called Believe It or Not. Um, I used to look at this. It was in the papers all the time. I thought, I thought um, um, <laughs> Believe It or Not was believable sometimes. I guess it was always believable. Or they wouldn't have put it in Believe It or Not. But this is one of the weirdest things I've, I've read. And this, since this is a family show, um, uh, I, don't, I don't really believe in uh, exposing young people to necessarily sexually explicit references, uh, but this is the case here. So you might want to put your hands or over all of from because of TikTok, your kindergartner's probably already seen and heard all this stuff. But there's there's an Italian athlete who ended up last in his 400 meter race at the 2022 World Athletics U-20 Championships. After making the rash decision, this is Natalie Penza, a news correspondent talking about this, after making the rash decision to go commando and having to run with, and what she refers to as his willy, having to run with his willy, falling out of his loose-fitting shorts. Uh -oh, uh -oh. Uh -huh. The Catholic Alberto Nonino, it would be an Italian who'd do this, right? Started off promisingly, went past two rivals in spectacular style on the last bend and coming down the uh, straightaway, he slowed down noticeably and then was filmed grabbing his crotch up to six times as his competitors went past him, and he ended up finishing at the back of the pack. Now, the runner was 18 years old, and immediately there was nothing left to the imagination, according to Natalie Penza, and everybody could understand why the man who had been leading, a young man who had been leading the race, ended up at the well, do I say this? At the rear of the race, 
because his willy had fallen out. Um, it's the last, it was the last series of the 400 meter decathlon. He was in lane five and he had his beep fall out, literally, and is the side of his shorts. And he had to hold on because it wasn't allowing him to run properly. And there you go. So the Spanish speaking press uh, jumped all over this and had some fun with it. Um, the trouser department ended up getting the blame for his disappointing performance uh, in social media statements after the footage of him uh, bringing his hand to his shorts. Uh, there was an Instagram story. Of course, you would know it on Instagram. And um, he said he was conscious of it, a very accident, big accident. Um, I don't want to see the links to the blogs, he's saying. Uh, he took a swipe at the press for, for covering, but that's the darndest thing I've ever heard about why an athlete loses a, a race in which he was leading. Um, it's not the first time a um, athlete's, quote-unquote, as they're describing here, Willie, uh, hindered the success of the athlete. There was a Japanese pole vaulter uh, who earned global fame at the 2016 Rio Olympics after his willy appeared to knock off the bar while qualifying. And, uh, I, I mean, there, there, there you are. Um, there, there you are. Well, yeah, now, that, I, I guess, is more of a, a sports story uh, than is anything you might have uh, heard the ESPN guy say about uh, – um, uh, Mount Rushmore. So uh, there you are. That's Coach Hogg's locker room for today. Uh, the big high point of it is, please, um, if you see uh, Mike Holloway, bow. The guy is fantastic. He's doing a great job. Uh, he's going to be around here for quite a while. I would suspect the world's best are going to want to come here and be trained by him. It's um, the only sad thing about the track now, um, understand why we uh, people from the public and has-beens who once ran on there competitively used to be able to go over in the evening when the track finished, team finished working out and do our uh, community running. And you would see old, older people and women and children and all uh, circling the track. It's all chained up now. It's no longer open in any way, shape, or form that I'm aware of for the public. Now, so far, that has not happened to the football stadium. The uh, stadium, however, right now is closed because they're getting it ready for uh, football season or putting in the seats and all that business that has to be done. And in the next couple of years, they're going to have to go in there and get that thing uh, compliant and put in railings because uh, there's no railings now. Um, people climbing up and down those stairs, the older people, you're going to start losing them. They're not going to come in those stadiums. But you're going to put in railings, probably have to close it when they do that. But right now, the Florida Stadium has been open on the weekends and in the evenings to people from the community who love to go out there and run the steps and all the above. What I'm doing right now is I'm um, uh, uh, doing the ramps and what I call the corkscrew, which is the ramp at the 
north end of the stadium, which is a real bear. Uh, as you get older, you, you realize you're older. That'll make you that'll make you humble. But right now, that's off uh, duty. But so far, the, the university has not gone the route that it went with the Florida track. And I spoke to some of the guys in the athletic department about it, but I don't think I got anywhere but to speak on deaf ears. Uh, it wasn't something that was uh, received very well. Um, I'm getting ready to go into some local things here. Uh, I want to talk a little bit, first of all, uh, about the woke school board candidates. Uh, one of the research team members in the public sent me uh, some information. Uh, I, I, and I thought I'd pass it along to you all that, you know, this term woke, which woke means that everything is racial and the country is deeply flawed and um, won't ever be corrected. We're going to get into the psychology of that if I have time in the second half of the show. But according to the documents I've gotten, and you all can vote the way you want. If you're a woke person, well, then you're going, to vote, you're going to vote for the following candidates. That's Tina Certain, Sarah Walkwell, and Prescott Coles. Uh, those are pretty well known to be the, uh, the, um, the woke candidates. And by woke, we mean the basis of all evil in the country is the racism. Now, the problem with that is that they have tried to jam that into uh, every decision about education. And um, so this school board race is coming out to be a real, uh, a real doozy, as um, folks in my family used to say, because it's going to draw a line. Uh, do you want to subscribe to the woke philosophy? Or do you want to educate the kids with traditional, more traditional approaches to curriculum and decisions about where schools are going on and programs and things of that nature and teachers? Um, you know, a very good friend of mine who is an excellent lady. She's from Marion County. She's in China right now teaching in an exchange program. And she made the point the other day we communicate. You may have seen it on her Facebook page that there's not a shortage of teachers. There's a shortage of appreciation for people who teach. And because there's a shortage of appreciation for people who teach, the people who are excellent teachers are not interested in teaching. Um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the purpose of being an administrator in a school system is to support your teachers. Uh, let's get out of their way and you know, make sure the lights are on for them. Uh, make sure that uh, the place is secure for them and then get out of the way and let them do their thing. Hire them on their individual talent. They're really individual contractors. They're not working for the big system. You, you've got them there because you trust them. You support them. They're uh, going to they love what they're doing or they wouldn't be there. Um, I tell you what, there's no. I can't tell you how what it means to a teacher to walk into some place like I did just the other day. Let me give you this story before we go on a break. One of the things that I taught my students at Santa Fe was the play Hamlet by Shakespeare. Um, and I spent six weeks on it very intensely, very intensely. And I, you know, I agree with Ken Kesey on this who what one flew over the cuckoo's nest. He and I were talking about this one time, and we agreed that you want to teach somebody something 
great. Teach them one great work intensely. Don't teach them a bunch of great works partially. You know, you're not excellent or anything. So I spent that intense time of six weeks with my students. They were not necessarily picked as a creme de creme. They're just regular people who walked in the classroom on Hamlet. And I told them, I said, one thing I know you'll say to me if I see you five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, you'll come up to me and you'll say, I know Hamlet. Well, let me tell you how that worked the other day. I won't get into the details yet, but I went into a business, a place of business to look into renting the facility for uh, uh, an event that was going to be going on in the future. I didn't know anybody there. And I went into the, uh, the, to the uh, event center and asked for the event coordinator. And the event coordinator came out to meet me. And the first thing this gentleman said was, I know Hamlet. And this gentleman had been my student in the early 2000s. I got to tell you something. That is really, really special. That is really special. I mean, you take it with you for life. You take it. This, is, this, this, this person who's now... He's not a teacher. He's not a he's a he's a citizen, but he's a citizen enriched by his knowledge of a great work of art and a very detailed knowledge of. It. And he's proud of it. It was not in the correct. Believe me, I was fortunate enough all my time. In both the high school system where I was briefly and the college system to be left alone by the administrators and supported by de facto them leaving me alone and trusting me. I mean, what better relationship? Hey, he knows what he's doing. Get out of his way and let him do it. I don't need to be macro-managed. I don't need to fill out a bunch of work for the state paperwork. I need to exchange conversations with the students. I don't need paperwork with the state. I don't need formulas. I don't need somebody to come in and tell me I'm racist. I don't need somebody to come in and, you know, all that crap that you hear at the school board has nothing to do with I know Hamlet. I guarantee you. There is a single person on that school board that knows Hamlet. Not one. Or they wouldn't be so stupid. We'll be right back in the Ward Scott Files after a brief break. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery 
delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. On August 11th, our restaurant Spurrier's Gridiron Grill will be celebrating our one-year anniversary, and we're inviting you to Celebration Point. Proceeds from the event will go to the Ronald McDonald House, and we'll have a spread of your favorite Spurrier dishes, as well as special guests, but you have to get a reservation. So go to Spurrier's.com right now and reserve your spot before it sells out. And thank you for a super first year. Go Gators! This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files gold sponsors are Maurice T. McDaniel, Lewis Oil Company, Shoot. GTR, on-the-spot dry cleaners, R&R construction, and style cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. A warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. All right, going to get on weather right now. Thanks to Lewis Oil, great supporter of Ward Scott Files, uh, very good friends of ours, and we appreciate that. Um, I tell you what, it looks like we're in for some warm weather even through the fall. I've been looking at some of the uh, big weather stations that, uh, you know, take a long look out into the future. But right now, of course, we have um, – uh, once again, a hot day where we are. It's going to be, let's see, uh, it's going to feel like it's 102 again today. And right now, we're projected to get up actually just 90, but the humidity. Uh, we're looking at the sun moving here at um, the Windy Hill Farm and moving starting back to um, the, from our post of observation. It appears to be moving, of course, um, uh, along the horizon towards our cooler months. But there's some talk now that this fall is not going to be a, a very a very cool fall. I'm taking a look at this. The fall forecast is, is going to be a warm one, and particularly over the middle of the states. We seem to be able to take it here. 
but the middle estates a little different. Um, we also have a flood threat to return to Ohio and the Tennessee River value, uh, valleys. And right now, two months into it, we don't have a hurricane so far in the Atlantic Basin. So um, that that is obviously good news. But that doesn't mean we won't get whacked once in a while with uh, with the big windy thing coming our way. So more of the same. If you're fortunate, you'll get a thunder boom or somewhat where um, be always wary of the lightning. It's a very sad story about the people who were struck there in D.C. Lightning is a very, very uh, ominous, as you know, thing. It can uh, do some weird things. And so uh, we have an app uh, that tells us where the lightning is, which we watch. And I have a friend who is in charge of the lightning prediction at the University of Florida football games. He's an electrical engineer professor, and he has more power over that football game, University of Florida football games, than anyone else because he roams the sidelines during the game. You won't notice him, but he's watching with his instruments for, for lightning. And I think if lightning gets within 25 miles, he is to uh, shut the game down. And, and he has the authority to do it. Um, he sits in with the coaching meetings and he sits in with the uh, umpire and referee meetings. And they all know that everybody there defers to his judgment and he has the ability. It doesn't matter whether you're driving for a touchdown or what's going on. If he calls that game, he calls that game until that lightning threat is over. So, yes, the University of Florida does have excellent uh, expertise on the sideline watching constantly. Uh, locally, you know, we've got the city of Gainesville elections coming up, and I just want to run you through some history here. Um, I think we've, we've sent it over to production. We'll just toss it up in the background. Uh, this is a, a, a deposition that um, uh, a candidate named Connish, uh, and, and it was taken of, Hato, of, of Adrian Hayes Santos, and um, it was, uh, let me take my, see my notes here when this occurred. It was in uh, December 9, 2016. And uh, Santos is, uh, is uh, being questioned here about his residency, which uh, Connish never thought was legit. And uh, there's an article, if you want to go back and research it, by Tyler Wilson. That was written in, uh, I think it's been, maybe we just tossed the first page up there. I'm not sure if we tossed the first page just of the, can we do that production? Yeah, he'll give them in a minute. We'll toss it up there so you can see it. But in 2017, February 14, um, there was um, an article that Santos had defeated Connish and um, there was an inquisition, if you will, or an inquiry into uh, what Hayes Santos residence uh, in the time period between May 25th, 2015 and December 14th, 2015 was. And I have got the deposition here. Okay, well, we can't put it up, but we just posted it on Ward's Hot Bulletin Board. Okay, if you want to go see it, it's at Ward's Hot Bulletin Board. And in there, I'm, I'm just going to go through some of the highlights for you. And there's also, as I say, a newspaper article about this 
that um, is questioning the affidavit of residency that Hayes Santos uh, swears up and down, clears up any doubt about where he lived, where he slept, all this business. But I'm going to tell you, if you take a look at that deposition, which you're invited to do, we put it up as a public record. There's some things that just don't well, make you wonder. Let me just go through a couple of these. Uh, at one point in the deposition, hey, Santos. Now, let, I'm assuming there's a kind of assumption that we have. Most of us, I think, can remember where he or she lived during a certain period of time, at least in recent memory. I can remember the addresses of where I lived. You know, exactly. I mean, to a T, I know what the addresses were. He can't, hey, Santos can't remember the addresses of any of the places he lived. If indeed he lived there, he couldn't remember the months. And you can take a look at this, at, at this deposition yourself. He couldn't remember the months he lived with a girlfriend. Now, does living with a girlfriend qualify as a residence? You see how blurred all this stuff becomes? And these guys learn how to manipulate this stuff. They learn how the, the, the boy, I'm telling you, res, what is a residence? Huh? He couldn't remember the months he lived with a girlfriend. That's in there. He couldn't remember exact addresses of where he supposedly put his head down. At one point in here, you'll see he has a refurbished house. But it's not in the district that he is elected to, which is District 4. Huh? At another point, he says he moved in with his mother. But he couldn't remember for how long. There's no mention that I saw in the deposition of a father. So he. I don't want to say conveniently. But it appears as if it were. You know, when I needed to go home to mom, I'll go home and, you know, I can't remember when I went to mom. I can't remember how long I stayed with mom. It's all through this deposition. He couldn't remember how long he stayed. there. Then he goes to St. Pete at some point in this testimony. And then there's a mention of another girlfriend and he can't remember the address of that. And he can't, you know, it's all foggy. You know, meanwhile, is this a residence? And the other thing that gets me about this is this gentleman is out here telling the city what's good for neighborhoods and has never had one himself. At some point, he sort of settles at 1125 Northeast 5th Avenue. Um, Northeast 4th Avenue area right in there. Uh, his mom is not in District 4. Uh, he can't remember the address of the girlfriend. And it's questionable how much time he spent at this Northeast 4th uh, and then 5th, along in there somewhere, 4th or 5th, I know, address, whether he rented a room there. or So if you run through this, my point is if you run through this deposition, and I, I suggest the only reason you'd want to do it is you want to find out what is it like to be 
evasive. This would probably be a lesson. In it. I mean, in the end, the guy passes with equivocation. He gets moved along and sits in a commission seat and ends up telling everybody what to do and ends up voting for inclusion at the expense of neighborhoods, which he's never had. He's never lived in a neighborhood. Oh, at one point he says he really likes the Northeast neighborhood. But he's not put any, he's not putting money into it. He's not, he's not committed to anything in the Northeast neighborhood. Other than the fact he finds a place to put his head down. You know, I, I, I just got curious about it. I remember somewhere in the research team, we had the deposition. I remembered seeing the deposition. And I remember always being annoyed by this guy because of the circuitous type of answers he gives in this deposition. Um, you know, you can't pin him down. And I thought that was really being, yeah, I'll let you make up your mind, but, but it, you know, it doesn't you know, appear to be straightforward. And Doris Connie said, I don't, I don't think anybody, I don't know if anybody expected him to win this argument about residency because residency doesn't mean anything. Single member districts don't mean anything in the city. I mean, the county. Now, they really don't mean much in the city either. Apparently, where you have a combination of single member districts and elections at large. The mayor is elected at large. But some of these guys like Santos are elected from a district. Tomorrow, I'll have Michael Rayburn on the ward, Scott Files. He's running for District 2 in the city. So the whole theory is that that's your representative in that district. But Santos doesn't act as if he represents a district. Does he act as if he represents District 4? Or does he more act like he's representing an ideology? Some kind of crap he read in a book. If you represent a district, you ideally would know just about everybody in that district, or at least who the organizers were in that district, and you would converse with them. You'd come back and meet with them. That's not the case. So this, along with the woke school board candidates, people come to me and say, wow, what is up with politics? I said, don't blame me. I didn't invent the system. You know, it's, hey, and as long as you got the system and they're manipulating it, you might as well manipulate, manipulate it too. Because they darn sure are. They, meaning opposing parties sometimes, opposing personalities, etc. You know, so if you want to take a look at, at something, you can take a look at that. We just posted it out on Ward's Hot Bulletin Board. Um, memory loss, uh, now, you know, I've been doing some research on what in the world has happened to us and where are we going. And it's a lot of opinion that we're headed for a crash. I've been talking about this. You can go back and read the conversations before the first civil war and see that the uh, um, differences in view were not dissimilar in many ways to the ones uh, we have right now. And um, 
I'm just going to jump around here with you on, give me the high points for you students. That may help you understand where we are, how we got here, and whether or not we can get out. There is a, um, um, a book out called um, um, uh, by Justin Gregg, a little brown book, um, Nietzsche, If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal. Well, this book um, discusses people and their brains and how we became people and what we've done with our brains. I'm just going to hit some high points here with you and let you think about it. Um, the author Mr. Gregg is the author Justin Gregg suggests that we uh, have an unshakable belief that intelligence, however we define it, is a good thing. And this is kind of reminds me of the woke left. They think they're smarter and know better and therefore can tell you what to do and where to do it and how high to jump and all that. But his research, Mr. Gregg's research, says intelligence is not necessarily a good thing. In fact, intelligence has been used to quite often be the instrument of destruction. That's not hard to understand. Um, also, um, he thinks, and this is very interesting, that our own intellectual accomplishments, ironically, are, are on track to produce our own extinction. Um, which is exactly how evolution gets rid of adaptations that don't fit. Now, isn't it interesting that your intelligence would be the instrument of your own extinction? Because why? You have, with your braininess, we have developed all these instruments of incompatibility with the so-called natural world. And we have deceived ourselves into thinking that they were compatible. We've got a language that we use that allows us, he says, to misrepresent the truth and to deceive us, our own selves, our language system, which is remarkable, is more developed than any other language system in the so-called natural world, as far as we know, right, is going to be and is the instrument that allows us to deceive ourselves. And as for ethics and morality, our moral reasoning has often led, ironically, to more death, violence, and destruction that we don't even find in the normative behavior of non-human animals. The cows I watch every day are not as smart as we are. I guess. But they don't do the stupid things to each other that we do to each other. 
incredibly, we are, we eat our own, so to speak, genocide. Other animals don't create, commit genocide. Our minds have evolved to deal with the immediate future, not the consequences of long-term future. Our minds are not, according to Mr. Gregg, able to accurately understand the outcomes of future experience based upon our present decisions. If you take a look at Homo sapiens, according to Mr. Gregg, we do very poorly uh, compared to other animals, other entities in the natural world. Ironically, because of our intelligence. And I got it. It made, it made me think of the arrogance of the intellectual crowd and academics. They like to think they are so smart that they have all the answers. And yet their intelligence may just be the dumbest asset they have. We have a way of saying, well, they don't have common sense. I think what we're addressing there with that comment is they are examples of the limits of cognitive ability. Now, also when looking at Freud and uh, Andrew Hartz helped us understand Freud and the cancel culture. The Freud, of course, saw mental health as a result of balance between the id, the ego, and the superego. And he thought a lot of mental illness was attributed to an overactive superego. And this analysis takes a look at the superego. The superego, for example, isn't always ethical. Um, the superego is quite frequently irrational. The superego probably internalized its behavior during its early childhood. And, you know, this has to do with how important it is to have a good family and a good family figure and particularly good father figures, which oftentimes we've talked about the absence of in cultures that have a lot of criminal youth. Because one of the ways to keep this superego in check and to make sure that selfish desires are not too destructive is through discipline. But we don't have discipline according to this analysis, using Freud as an example. We have a patchwork morality. 
And consequently, we have a hypermorality everywhere. What do we have? We have implicit bias training attempts, which are attempts to purge us of our unconscious forbidden thoughts. My God, that eats up the entire culture. That's everywhere. Implicit bias. Implicit bias is based on the premise that you have to purify your unconscious forbidden thoughts. And that has resulted in criminals getting compassion while police are vilified. As an example, it's nuts. And people ever ask me quite frequently, I don't have the answer. Can we correct it? Well, there is one perhaps way to address it. And that's through leadership. Where uneven standards and excessive morality can be addressed with a fair and pragmatic rules. Fair rules. Because we need something to put a break on the spontaneity of this super ego. I thought that was a pretty interesting analysis. Um, the world of hypermorality that we live in right now, based upon purging oneself of implicit evil, really. They don't use that word, but repressed bias. You see the word they used again. I thought that was very interesting. I pass that along to you. It's my best attempt, my friends, at understanding. Implicit bias training attempts to purify the unconscious of forbidden thoughts. There you are. There you are, my good friends. Well, tomorrow I'll interview another city commission candidate, Michael Rayburn, and uh, have a great day. Warthog Command Center out.